We're turning back to Ezekiel this morning. And let me just take a moment to remind you where we are in this book. Before Christmas, we left the city of Jerusalem under siege by the Babylonians. Then last week, Ezekiel received the news that Jerusalem had fallen. Ezekiel, you remember, was in Babylon in exile. We might have expected that that news of Jerusalem falling would be followed by despair and darkness. But we found last week that Ezekiel's message takes on a new emphasis after Jerusalem's fall. Now that God's judgment has finally and decisively fallen, the message of the book shifts. It shifts to hope for the future. God promises restoration and peace for his people. Last week we looked at chapter 34. And in that chapter we heard God promise to care for his people just like a good shepherd cares for his flock. God promised to gather his people and feed them. He promised to bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. He promised to place over his people one shepherd king. And he said that the rule of that shepherd king would bring peace and blessing to God's flock. We saw that God's promise would ultimately be fulfilled in the new heaven and earth. But it would have a degree of fulfillment before that. And for the Israelites in exile, that meant they would return eventually to their own land. That's what God speaks about in chapter 35. He announces judgment on one of Israel's neighbors, the Edomites. The Edomites had been very happy about Jerusalem's fall because they wanted the land of Israel for themselves. But in chapter 35, God says to them, not only will you not get that land, your own land will become desolate. Then in the beginning of chapter 36, God speaks to Israel again. And he promises judgment on the other nations who might have the same ideas as the Edomites. All those nations who want the land of Israel for their own possession. And then God promises that the land of Israel will be again filled with Israelites. The fields will be plowed and sown again. The towns will be inhabited again. And the ruins rebuilt again. The people and the land will prosper. Now as we hear all of this from God, all these promises of restoration and new life and blessing, it raises a very obvious question. Why? Why is God going to do this? He has received nothing but ingratitude and rebellion from the Israelites. They fully deserve to be taken into exile. They fully deserve the judgment Babylon has just brought on Jerusalem. So why is God now promising restoration and blessing? Why doesn't he just walk away and forget the whole business? Well, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, God gives us an answer to that question. And it's an answer that doesn't apply only to ancient Israel. It helps us understand the motivation behind everything that God does. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 36, 
verses 16 to 38. In the Church Bible, that's page 867. Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that will remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. 
I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is God's word. In this passage, we read about new life and blessing for God's sake. And we'll break this down into three sections. First of all, God's ambition. Second, God's plan to fulfill his ambition. And then third, the outcome. First of all, in verses 16 to 23, we read about God's ambition, the honor of his name. These days we don't talk much about honor. The old stories about knights and musketeers were very concerned with honor. But it doesn't get much attention nowadays. And yet we still have a sense of what it means to lose honor. We talk about someone losing their good name. What we mean is they used to have a good reputation. But now something has tarnished their reputation. They've lost their good name. When we talk that way, we are tying someone's name very closely to their character. Arthur Miller wrote a play called The Crucible. It's a favorite for school drama productions. Shortly after we arrived here, I saw it put on at Queen Mary's school, featuring on that occasion our own Peter Lawrence. At the center of that play, The Crucible, is a man called John Proctor. And he's accused of terrible things that he hasn't done. And finally, the point is reached where he can save his life if he confesses to the crimes. He's not guilty, but he can stay alive by claiming he is guilty. The investigators will be happy that they've got a result and the case can be closed. John Proctor has a wife and children. And he decides to confess and save his life. But then his prosecutors decide that a spoken confession isn't enough. He has to sign his name to a written confession. And John Proctor responds to them by shouting, I have given you my soul, now leave me my name. In other words, isn't it enough that I've lied to save my life? Do I have to sign my name to lies as well? Does the name John Proctor have to be forever tied to dishonor? In Ezekiel 36, God himself explains that he faced the loss of his good name. His name, God says, was in danger of being forever tied to dishonor. And through Ezekiel, God sets out the problem that he faced. The problem was that God and his people could not live together. And to understand why this is a problem, we need to be aware of the Old Testament up to this point. Back in the book of Genesis, God chose one man, Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, a nation special to God. Then God promised that this special nation would have a land of their own, the land of Canaan. And finally, centuries later, 
Abraham's descendants actually stood ready to enter Canaan. They already had God's name on them. They were known as God's special people. He had identified himself with them. And as they stood ready to enter Canaan, God said that he would choose a place in Canaan to put his name. In other words, it would become God's special place. The place associated with God's name. Now that place turned out to be the city of Jerusalem. That's where God's temple was built. That's where he was present among his people. The Israelites were God's special people living with God in God's place. But look what happened. Verse 17. When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. According to Old Testament law, women were ceremonially unclean during their monthly period. Now that didn't mean that they had done anything wrong. It was part of a whole system God set up to show that sin separated people from God. And God used physical things like leprosy and periods to illustrate this truth. Those with certain physical impurities couldn't participate in worship at the tabernacle. In fact, they couldn't participate in day-to-day life among God's people. They had to live apart from God and his people until their impurities were gone. And through all this, God was teaching his people a deeper truth. Those with the spiritual impurity of sin can't experience fellowship with God. They're cut off from God. That's what's behind verse 17. Now, from earlier chapters, we know that Israel's sin was great. Their false worship was great. And the way God describes it is, they defiled the land by their conduct and their actions. God had put his own name on the land of Canaan, and especially on Jerusalem. And now God's people are making God's place impure. So God intervened. Verse 18. I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. The Israelites dishonored God's place. So he ejected them from his place. But that created a problem. Because they're his people. Yes, his name was connected to the land of Israel. But it was also connected to the people of Israel. That's the point of verse 20. Wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. Yet they had to leave his land. How did the Israelites profane God's name in exile? Well, this is not talking about what they did in exile. They profaned his name simply by being in exile. That simple fact dishonored God's reputation. 
Hadn't he chosen this people? Hadn't he associated his name with them? Hadn't he promised them the land and associated his name with the land? But now that whole connection has been broken up. The people are scattered. They're away from the land. God and his people can't live together. What does that do for God's reputation? What does it say about God's character? Well, if things stay that way, God's reputation will be destroyed. His name will be forever associated with a failed relationship and broken promises. Never mind that it was Israel's sin that had ruined everything. God's name would be forever tarnished. The world would assume he doesn't keep his promises. Either he can't keep them or he won't keep them. Look what God says about the situation in verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God is going to bring new life and blessing for the sake of his own name. God's motivation is to prove his good character. That's why he will act. Israel will not be gathered from exile because they deserve it. They don't deserve it. They will not be blessed because they've earned it. They haven't earned it. God's blessing will come to Israel for God's sake. So the nations will know his faithfulness and his power. He's the God who keeps his promises. Now, would you say that this truth is well understood today? Is this the way we think of God? Isn't it far more common to think that God is basically there to cater for our needs, to bless us and save us from pain and trouble? Isn't it more common to think of ourselves as the center of the universe? Dear old God rushes around frantically trying to make sure we're happy and we have everything we need and everything we want. One writer says this, Many people approach Christianity as if they were interviewing God for a job, checking out whether as a deity He is up to the task of being Lord of their life. They are seeking to determine whether Christianity will work for them. On the assumption that God will be only too pleased to welcome them should they decide in his favor. That may be a popular way to think of God. But it's not the way God himself teaches us to think about him. The God presented to us in the Bible acts for the honor of his own name. 
Now, as we will see, this results in human beings being shown grace, mercy, and love. It results in blessings for God's people, both present and eternal blessings. It results in our happiness. But God's primary motivation is not our happiness. His primary motivation in all that he does is the honor of his own name. That's why when God the Son taught his disciples to pray, his model prayer began like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed means holy. Jesus understood that the most important thing in this world is that God receives honor. That is what motivates God the Father's plans and actions. It's what motivates Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And it should be our motivation too. This should be the truth that shapes our prayers and that shapes our whole outlook on life. It's all about God being glorified. That is the primary reason God made you and saved you and will keep you for eternity. In Ephesians, Paul says, all the blessings we receive are for the praise of God's glory. In everything God does, his ambition is the honor of his own name. And that is exactly as it should be. After all, God is God. There is no one and no thing greater than God. He is worthy of all honor. It would be idolatry for God to work for the glory of anything else. We've been told about God's ambition. In the verses that follow, We read about God's plan to fulfill his ambition, gathering and forming a people fit for his presence. Remember the problem. God had promised that a great nation would come from Abraham. From that one nation, blessing would spread to the whole earth, and God himself would live among his people. That was the promise. But Abraham's descendants have shown themselves unfit for God's presence. They are unholy, and God is holy. Now, God could simply bring them back to Israel. He could let them have another chance. He could tell them to try and reform themselves. But it wouldn't be long before the people showed their unholy character all over again, and they would have to be sent away all over again. If men and women are going to be fit for God's presence, they need not reformation, but transformation. And that's exactly what God promises to do. Look again at verse 24. I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. And from all your idols, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God will gather and transform his people. Verses 25 to 27 are about internal change. The people have God's law already. They know what he wants. They know what glorifies him. The trouble is they don't do it. And often they don't want to. And in fact, they're not able to. So first God says, I will purify you. I will wash away the stains and the ugliness of sin from you. That's the first part of this process of transformation. God uses the symbolism of sprinkling his people with water. That's taken from the ceremonies of the Old Testament law. People had to wash in water before they could come near the tabernacle. But that outer washing was there to point to the need for inner cleanness when we approach God. And here God makes it clear that's not something we can achieve ourselves. I had a friend in school, and whenever his dad caught him swearing, he would make him wash his mouth with soap. The idea was to stop my friend from swearing, to clean up his mouth. But very clearly, it didn't work. That's because the things we say are determined, actually, by the state of our hearts. Our mouths don't really have much to do with it. Our mouths are just the channel for what's coming from our hearts. And here God says, you can't scrub away the impurities in your heart. If you're going to be clean on the inside, only I can do it. And I will, God says, I will cleanse you. And then in verse 26, he actually promises a heart transplant. Look again at verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. The heart and spirit of a person are a way of talking about where the desires and decisions come from. This is what Jesus said about the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. And here, God not only promises to cleanse us initially, he promises a new heart and spirit that will produce clean things. Washing us once would be no good if we kept the same old heart. It would just carry on pumping out evil. We'd be dirty again in no time. But God promises us a heart transplant. And notice how he puts it. Our old sinful heart was dead. It was stone. The new heart God gives us will be alive, made of flesh. Sin always means death. Holiness means life. It doesn't matter how physically fit and active we are, 
We're not truly and fully alive until God has given us spiritual life. In this context, that's what God means by a heart of flesh. And in verse 27, he describes the same thing in a slightly different way. I will put my spirit in you. God himself will live in us by his Holy Spirit. And look at the result of that in verse 27. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What we are powerless to do by ourselves, we will be able to do when God's Spirit is in us. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke to a man called Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a very religious man, but Jesus told him that being religious wasn't enough. If Nicodemus was going to enter God's kingdom, Jesus said, he had to be born again. Well, Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about. Do I have to climb back in my mother's womb? But Jesus pointed Nicodemus to this passage to explain what he meant. Jesus said, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. It's almost certain that Jesus had Ezekiel 36 in mind. He's telling Nicodemus it's not enough to try to be good. You need God to transform you. The only way you can be made fit for God's presence is by receiving a new heart and a new spirit, being born again. So at its heart, Becoming a Christian is not about what you or I do. It's about what God does in us. And Jesus went on to explain to Nicodemus, God does this work in us when we acknowledge our need for new life and then trust in Jesus as our only hope for new life. Now here in our passage, God does not explain how he will bring new life. That comes in the New Testament. But here God does describe the blessing that comes with new life. It's the blessing of restored fellowship with God. Look at verse 28. You will live in the land I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. We said earlier that God acts first and foremost for his own honor. But that doesn't mean that God's people somehow miss out. No, his people are blessed. All of God's good promises are fulfilled for his people. It is to our benefit that God acts for his own sake. And all of this results in a people who are humbled by God's grace. That's what we see in verses 31 and 32. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. When we experience God's grace, and when we reflect on what God has done for us, it will cause us to hate our sin. The deeper our experience and understanding of God's grace, the deeper will be our hatred of sin. We will be disgusted by the lives that we used to live. There's something wrong if Christians can boast about their past sins. If we see our sins for what they are, how can we ever use them as entertaining stories? Isn't that glorying in our sin instead of glorying in God's forgiveness? And when we see the sin of our past lives appearing in our new life, we will loathe it. It's true that those who have been born again are still capable of sin. We all know that only too well. But if you or I can sin without feeling shame and disgrace, if our sin seems like a little thing to us, we might want to ask ourselves, have I really experienced this new birth that Ezekiel and Jesus spoke about? New birth brings with it a loathing of sin. The Apostle Paul could refer to himself as the worst of sinners. And that was near the end of his Christian life, not the beginning. The Apostle Paul is proof that the more we grow in holiness, the more we can see the ugliness of the sin that remains in our lives. Now, the point here is not that we should go around beating ourselves. We don't have to live oppressed by the guilt of our sin. First John says when we confess our sin, he will forgive us our sin. When God forgives us, we're forgiven. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says he blots out our transgressions and remembers our sins no more. When we have repented of our sin, and when God has forgiven our sin, we're free from the guilt of it. And yet, when our sin comes to mind, doesn't it make us shake our heads? Don't we regret what we did? Aren't we humbled again that God has been so gracious to us? Don't we want to say what Paul said? I am the worst of sinners, but I have been shown mercy. To God be honor and glory. That kind of humbling is part of God's work to make us fit for his presence. And in the final section of our passage, we see the outcome. God will be honored for his work of recreation. Verse 33 This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, 
are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Now certainly what God says here has had a degree of fulfillment in Israel's history. Eventually some exiles did come back. There was rebuilding. But the land never regained the glory it had previously in the days of David and Solomon. And yet look what God says in verse 35. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. They are the onlookers. When God fulfills what he's promising here, it will be even more glorious than the heyday of David and Solomon. It will be like Eden. And that tells us the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises is still in the future. We're seeing again what we saw last week. God's promises are stretching forward to the new heaven and earth described in the book of Revelation. God has described a renewed place for his people and now finally look how he describes his people. Verse 37. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Earlier in this book, God had refused to listen to rebellious Israel. For example, in chapter 8, he said, Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. In chapter 20, I will not let you inquire of me. But here, having promised to transform his people into people whose desire is to obey him, here God promises, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel. God's people will have meaningful communication with him. And God's people will be gathered into his presence. There were seven annual feasts in Israel spread throughout the year. At the time of those feasts, Jerusalem would be thronged with people. They would flood into the city from all over Israel, hundreds of thousands. And they would bring thousands of sheep for offerings to God. They were there to worship God. And here God says, picture what the city must have been like at those times. And you have an idea what my gathered people will be like. The book of Revelation gives us another picture. John describes the ultimate gathering of God's people. He says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You and I may live in a time and place where God's name is not honored. But one day, he will receive the honor that's due to his name. And as a small gathering of his people this morning, we can begin to honor him now. We're going to stand and sing together, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. <clears throat>